All right, folks, before we get to the main thing, I want to let you know that this episode of Oil & Gas Upstream is made possible by our good friends at Technip FMC. Now, you probably know them for their subsea business, but did you know that Technip FMC is doing fantastic things for the industry at the surface? The latest innovation is called Emission. An emission will let you monitor and control vapor pressure in real time. To learn more, visit technipfmc.com. Oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Welcome to Oil and Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Melkert, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for Oil and Gas Upstream Research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from the DOE about a year ago and founded a small consultancy and became a podcast host. Before I introduce our guest, I want to thank Technip FMC for sponsoring this podcast. And I want to ask you to do me a big favor by answering a one-question survey. It takes about 10 seconds, and the link is in the show notes. In return, we will happily send you some stickers for your laptop or your hard hat or your pets. And now I'd like to introduce today's guest, Dr. Patrick Sullivan, CEO and founder of Oceanit Laboratories. Hi, Patrick. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm honored uh, to have you here. And when I read your bio here, people are going to say, wow. So let me go into it here. Dr. Patrick Sullivan is a scientist, engineer, technologist, entrepreneur, businessman, author, speaker, and futurist. That's my favorite part. He founded Oceanit in 1985, a self-funded mind-to-market company that produces technology from homegrown research, development, and engineering, which employs 200 scientists, engineers, and professionals that provide innovative solutions in the fields of aerospace, energy, engineering, information technology, and life sciences. Oceanit has created cutting-edge innovations in the fields of aerospace, energy, biophotonics, artificial intelligence, neurotoxin detection, nanotechnology and optics, as well as technology for missile defense, advanced manufacturing, space debris management, and environmental applications that are the subject of numerous reports, patents, and research programs. Oh, Patrick, thank you so much for being with us today. We, um, I remember we, when I worked at DOE, uh, when you would come to visit, I would just love talking with you because you'd bring up so many things I hadn't thought of and so much fun to talk to. And so everyone's going to get a little taste of that um, here on today. Um, but let's begin by having you tell us a little bit about Oceanit and all its accomplishments. I mean, that's pretty cool. Well, thank you, Elena. Um Oceanit is, um, we call it a mind-to-market company. And what that means is we think of things in fundamental science and then we find ways to market, to get to market. And so we say we focus in buckets, you know, aerospace, engineering, or energy, life sciences, information systems. But in fact, it's sort of subject agnostic. And I say that because 
the needs of the world keep evolving. So the general subject, for example, of energy has been around for a long time, but the needs in the energy space are evolving as a function of oh, all yeah. kinds of drivers in the environment. And so what we do is we give people the luxury of thinking of what's needed in the future. We usually do this in the last quarter of the year. And we have a, there's a discipline to it. So a method to the madness. And so, for example, <laughs> um, in the last quarter of the year, in December, we do an innovation summit, which is kind of an unconference. And by that, I mean, we put together, it's open to anybody in the company on anything they want to talk about. Any ideas? Patrick, did you say unconference? Yeah, we originally thought we'd do a conference in a normal format, but we thought let's let's not do that because the thing that makes it interesting is when people talk about what they're doing and most of all what they care about. So what we do is we create this opportunity to do these penetrates. Uh, there's five buckets they put their idea in to address. Uh, questions. It's kind of like uh, the DARPA format, but it's a chart. And then they stand by it. Uh, and again, it's open to anybody in any subject, but things that they care about. And the question that they're trying to answer is what's, in what's interesting and important and what can we do to make the world a little bit better? And so they put ideas up on the board and then people come around and talk to them and then they get stickers and the winner gets like Jamba Juice. And so we've got you know, kind of the, <laughs> the, 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 the first, second, and third place. But see, these posters create the future conversation in, in the coming year. That's why we do it in December. Those ideas become part of the future conversation of what we're thinking about and what we're going to do. It's not clear how it all works sometimes because it takes multiple steps to go from something somebody's really interested in into an area where there's a real product. But it starts with this, what is a really cool thing we should be thinking about? And it will somewhere in the future become a real product. Some of these we will uh, support with an internal innovation fund, but some of them we turn into proposals uh, where we try to match risk appetite with different uh, funding agencies in particular because they're too risky for venture. So venture capital is really not interested in these things. Um, they're too risky for corporate, but you've got parts of the government like DARPA, Office of Naval Research, some parts of Department of Energy, Air Force Research Lab, the risk appetites go up and down, right? Sometimes they don't want to take any risk. Sometimes they're willing to take a lot of risk. But we try to find that match. And then we give them a proposal, and it's really kind of the seedling of the idea. And then it'll kind of evolve from there. So when I look back at all the things we do, it starts like that. But we formalize the process, oh. and it's really broad in scope. So it's not limited by, well, we only do this one subject or this one space or this one thing. And some of the best ideas come from people that we might never expect. And so we produce um, – we, 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 we actually make a chip 
that is um, like a synthetic optic nerve. It's uh, it's more like the way an animal sees something, and uh, we we built a version of it, uh, which you know only groups like Department of Defense would love. But then we had a like a, a 24 year old double uh, E who said, you know, it's cool, but here's a better idea on how to build this thing. So we blew the whole thing up, and the whole thing now is digital, and it's it's just it's an amazing upgrade to the whole idea, but we had to, to accept the idea that the, what we were doing was okay, but here's a whole better way to think about it that nobody was really thinking about. And he's just, a, you know, kind of a kid, I say, because he was relatively uh, young, but it was a great idea. And I thought, wow, he's exactly right. We're not even looking at it the right way. Uh, same thing with, um, I think this year, uh, we have uh, one of the really cool things that just came up and, and really was exciting for a lot of people was this idea of fungi and uh, the different applications. So, for example, we're looking at everything from… Uh, you mean fungus? Fungus. Plural fungi? Yeah, so okay. designing and, and using fungus for all kinds of really interesting applications. So, it has applications in energy we think it's got some really interesting insights into computation because if you look at how they communicate, there's a computational network that's very efficient in the way they do things. And so we're exploring all these weird applications and in the future there will be several things come out of that. I pretty much am absolutely... So, so my understanding about, say, mushrooms... Uh, they're like their roots are all connected or something, right. and that's how they communicate. They're all one thing, but but they're separate. Right, they're individual. and and they can process chemicals and toxins, and they do these bizarre, interesting things that we're just learning about. And so we thought, what a what an interesting space to explore. And if we can come up with a uh, we're really looking for more of a causal model. So the idea is to look at the way they behave and come up with a... So right now, a lot of things in this hybrid, uh, you know, bio life science are done through correlation, where we look at it, we randomly collect data. In the medical space, you do epidemiologic studies. Right. But we're thinking... There's there's a mathematical precision to it. We just don't understand it. So we've wow. we've been working on this idea of um, uh, a, it's a human style AI. We call anthropomorphic AI, and it's using uh, linguistics as a model for human cognition. And so we developed the mathematics for this, and and have been using it for a variety of things. And so one of the things we did was. Um, this rapid test we developed where we have FDA approval, that all started by mathematically designing a molecule and then synthesizing the molecule. And so when you really step way back, um, the idea of causality versus correlation is not new. You know, Galileo figured the, the planets moved because of math, not because of religion. At the time, people were upset because he said, no, I, I don't think the church has much to do with this right now. And but here's the math, and they locked them up, and then eventually they said, all right, okay, maybe the math has something to do with it. But, but we think in, in, in this space, there's a mathematics that 
makes things work more efficiently and more predictably. And the tool set we're developing for that we refer to as the grammar. And so we developed on a DARPA program, the grammar of RNA. So designing molecules <laughs> with which look like you have infinite... Com- RNA meaning the ribonucleic acid Absolutely. RNA. Okay. So, okay. so the way to... Th- the way to imagine this is um, the American alphabet's got 26 symbols. Symbols come together, make words. Words make sentences. So you got 26 symbols producing infinite complexity. So we think that's what's going on with genetics. And you, circling back to fungi, we think there's a, a rules-based grammar that drives how these things behave and why they perform what they do and why they are able to do the things that they do. And so one of the questions we're looking at is can we – crack the code of why they do that, which will then lend itself to everything from addressing climate, right, with, you know, CO2 and that kind of thing, processing chemicals, pharmaceuticals. Uh, But at the same time, we think there's something to learn about this very efficient way that it communicates and does computation. Whereas we think, um, uh, like if you look at chips today and the way we do computing, it hasn't changed in a long time. So, you know, we kind of keep trying to push for massive data. Uh, but a good example is chat GPT, which is really cool, is very brittle, as are all machine learned systems. Whereas humans deal with, with, with complexity, ambiguity, uh, edge cases all the time with no problem. Right. And right. so we think there's something to learn about how biologic systems are very efficient computationally to inform, it's called biomimicry. We can learn from that and then bring that back into in silico so that we're doing it in a more efficient computational mode because we don't have infinite computation capability if we just keep using brute force. But if we can learn to be elegant about it, we can be much more efficient and actually have much broader capability. So you, the goal is to eliminate the brittleness of machine learning which is great for entertainment, but but you you really wouldn't want ChatGPT doing serious work because you could clearly, you know, it could go off course and you can get into big trouble. Well, so so that uh, intuitively I can connect with that because I know that um, I can sense things. You know, with I, you know, my fingers or my toes or whatever, my extremities, and then they're immediately in my brain, and that was that was fast, and and you can go into a space and detect changes in temperature and pressure. I mean, I get migraines from the weather. You know, it's a real common thing around here in D.C. And so we we do that already, and but you know, we don't understand our the human body perfectly. But so at the same time that you're trying to get these um, capabilities and understand them mathematically so that we can work with them, we're also getting greater insights about how we operate just as the body operates. Right. It's, uh, it's this really cool field called biomimetics. biomimetics. And so it, through Darwinian evolution, things have evolved to be very good at what they do. And if we can learn from these systems, we can then try to replicate them with machines that will be much more capable, but we're learning from nature that has spent millions of years developing a capability and a skill. 
and they're very efficient. So a really good example we're, we're, we're looking at, but um, so for example, um, birds are very efficient at flying long distances, yet drones can't do that, not even close. And some of the early ideas of guys like Leonardo da Vinci, they were trying to replicate birds, and today we produce aircraft, and they do a lot of really good things. But, but birds are very efficient in the way they use fuel. And so we're, we're thinking we can produce very long-distance drones by trying to better emulate the way birds operate. And so that has you then covering a whole bunch of bases, right? So nanotechnology, to look at how, how do feathers really work, is in and of itself a whole area, right? Then you've got the, the way they, you know, the propulsion works and the way they use and process energy. But we think there's tons of stuff to learn there too. So that, that field of biomimetics is fun. It's early, but it's stuff we're exploring. And uh, fungi ended up in the bucket this year is one of the things we're looking at. But I'm sure things will come from it there's a lot of curiosity about it. And what's most interesting is we look at it and say, that's really cool. I don't think I fully understand it. So that's why it's kind of interesting too, because the fact that you don't understand it all makes it something to be curious about, to learn from. So, so this is, when I asked you, tell us about OceanNet. This is, do you do this every December, every year? Every December we do this, we come up with a list and then we lock it down. So the discipline of the business focuses on execution most of the year. But last quarter of the year, we begin this conversation about what we should do with our time on the planet and what should we think about. And then we roll it up into a few things and then execute on that. And that kind of feeds this pipeline and the pipeline has been going on and on and on. So there's tons of products coming out on the other end. That's where Hedex, Everpel, you know, Dragax, Blast Ninja, all of those started way on the left side with ideas, but not necessarily saying here's the product and here's the market and everything, but things we thought were really right. interesting and important right. became right. ideas. And it happens right. persistently. That's the thing about it. And it follows this process, which I kind of map out in the book. Um, yeah, yeah. Tell us about your book, um, Intellectual Anarchy. Yeah, so the, the name is kind of describes a process we, we use internally called intellectual anarchy, but it's really not anarchy. Uh, it's actually a discipline, but to most people on the outside, it looks like anarchy, because we start by asking people to think. And from I think what, what we're really doing is you've got um, business that tries to do science and science that tries to do business. And we're kind of the latter. So we, we apply science to business. And so we start by thinking. And it, it really is an anarchy. It, it's a, this crazy thing that repeats itself constantly. But when we load it up in the one end, it will something will come out on the other end. But we try to create the space to think, have conversations, look at what's going on around the planet and industries that we think are really important for the future of the planet. And that, you know, inevitably it's energy, it's healthcare, it's defense, it's you know, transportation, it's things that the world must address in order to continue 
you know, to have a planet where, where people can coexist and work together. And so yeah. what we've discovered is that because we're, you know, I started this in Hawaii, so that, that makes it a little odd to begin with. But what we learned is that um, coming from the middle of the ocean forces us to think more deeply about how we innovate and to create processes, not just on technology and science, but business models, finance, manufacturing, distribution, quality systems, and everything else. So you have to innovate across this whole spectrum. But in the book, I review how we think about it. And so it turns out, for example, that um, if you've got uh, transportation, energy, and broadband, you can be anywhere on the planet. And pretty much everybody travels everywhere anyway. So it's not really a penalty to be where we are because we're actually working, we're working all over the world. The only thing you've got to do... And, and you founded the company in Hawaii and you've been there ever since, but you're not just there. Right. No, so. no, I started here. So my, my story is simple. I married a local girl <laughs> and the rest is history. She's wonderful. We got A sweetheart. She really is. <laughs> we love her. And we've been together for a long time. We got married when we were uh, early 20s. We didn't know what we were doing. We were just very lucky and um, I wouldn't change a thing, but... We, you know, this is home and the world is, you know, the market. So we look at the market is the rest of the planet and this is where we live. So we do things here too, but we don't limit our thinking to just what's here. We're working in Europe. We're working in the Middle East. We're working in Asia. We're working in all kinds of places because we think that it's mostly a perspective of how you see the world and the way we see the world is it's, we're not really limited unless we limit ourselves. And I and I gave this talk to uh, – the book is popular with certain groups. Uh, there was uh, about 120 university uh, presidents, deans, and chair uh, department chairs uh, at a conference and uh, from all 50 states. And they're looking at building the workforce for this next – uh, sort of wave of the industrial revolution. The first industrial revolution program in the United States was the land grant program signed into law by Abraham Lincoln. Right, when right. we had the uh, competition between uh, machines and human labor, human labor in the South, machines in the North, but you had the industrial revolution coming th from Europe. And so that to build a competitive workforce, they created the land-grant program, which includes schools like MIT, Carnegie Mellon, and you know, a whole bunch, and um, to build a workforce of the future around STEM-related fields, so engineering, science, math, uh, military science, all kinds of things in that area. And so it was kind of interesting because I told them, although we're in Hawaii, uh, we're kind of a metaphor for most of them. See, a lot of them think that you have to be in Silicon Valley to do anything. And I said, that's one modality, that's one model in how to bring something to market. And the biggest innovation in Silicon Valley is the way they finance and bring it to market. It's not technology. Because I said, if you look around the country, you've got great universities in every state. 
there's roughly 5,500 to 6,000 universities and colleges that, that train STEM-related fields. So I said the, the real issue is people think you know, you're isolated. You act like you're isolated when, in fact, you're really not. And you have to innovate then the rest of what needs to be done, finance, business models, uh, distribution, and everything in the middle. You can't just leave that. But, but see, a lot of folks think that there's one way to do things, and it's always been like that forever, when, in fact, Silicon ah. Valley used to be agriculture. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Shockley, who got the Nobel Prize for the transistor, ended up at Stanford is because he grew up there in Palo Alto. His father was an engineer for USGS or something. And some of his students founded Fairchild. There was no market for semiconductors. And the first transistor literally looked like a turd on a plate. It wasn't very impressive. But the physics was amazing. And this group of students looked at that and figured that they could make things with it replacing tubes with, you know, transistors. And that began the sort of this revolution in computation. And But people think it's always been like that. But no, it it, it wasn't. And then you kind of look at things today. I was I provided a kind of a white paper on quantum to some folks uh, in Congress that were trying to figure out, you know, do we invest in this or not? And I said, nobody can tell you with a straight face it's going to create, you know, hundreds of millions of jobs or something. But I can tell you this, it has the potential to disrupt everything we think we know about how we do things computationally and in other areas around communication and encryption and and the list goes on. So I said, it has huge potential. There's just a lot of stuff we don't understand. So I said, I think, you know, Department of Energy, for example, should invest in this field because it's enormously, you know, it's got huge potential, but it's going to take time to work out. And if it does work, it will totally disrupt everything. So I said, nobody would have said when they, you know, when Shockley invented the transistor, there'll be this thing called a mobile phone. It's going to have all these chips and they'll be in cars because <laughs> the world didn't exist like that. Same mm-hmm. thing with a lot of other fields. And so that's where groups like Department of Energy Department of Defense are really critical to take that kind of early risk mm. on ideas. And one of the big challenges is that you've got policymakers and elected officials that become very short-term in their thinking. And if they don't see the requirement, you know, back to that conversation on requirement, if they don't see that, they don't feel it's a good investment. And so this yeah. is where managers are crushing the idea of innovation. Then they wonder why isn't there innovation it's as though they have this notion that it's like instant oatmeal. You just add water and stir, and now you've got innovation. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> and instant oatmeal doesn't even taste as good as the long way. Yeah. So. <laughs> but, but it's, well, DOE was investing in um, quantum computing and even put out a roadmap for, for all of that. I, I don't think it's still going, but... The point is, is there's a roadmap out there. Well, and, and taking those early chances, right? So supporting, there's a place for national labs and a, a place for universities. But the real rubber meets the road when you have uh, companies, generally small companies, that bring a lot of agility 
and drive to move a technology where you have an insight in a lab somewhere and they want to produce a product. It's a long journey, but it's something we could do across the whole country. And there's a whole bunch of things mm -hmm. that could support that. Uh, mm -hmm. One of them, which I'll, I'll just mention, is the Small Business Innovation Research Program, SBIR. Right. SBIR was really founded by this guy, Roland Tibbetts, at NSF. And I had the benefit of meeting him years ago. Um, and I remember when we were talking about it, um, it's this idea of these small teams of people bringing, you know, this kind of drive and energy to really do something that pushes innovation. And that's a program that we have in the country. It's not utilized as well as it should be. And there's provisions in it called phase three where you can, you know, once you do the phase one and two, and it's it's huge competition. You know, winning a phase one is like one in 10. So I tell new entrepreneurs, you know, once you get knocked down, just keep in mind, you, you wrote one, you got to write nine more to win. So get it <laughs> right. back in there and, and get to work. But once you get a phase one, and, and or phase two, there's this thing called phase three where the government can just write a contract. And a lot of the government doesn't use that, but it's a provision in the law and uh, they can acquire the technology. So there's all kinds of ways to move faster, but it comes down. To well, well, it's not it. And, and as you're probably going to say it, it's not easy to get from the lab to the field for, or, or to the market for lots of reasons. And so, yeah, yeah, go there. And, and, and that sort of we call small to scale or lab to field is an interesting challenge. And so in the book, I describe a little bit about how we manage it, but it comes down to culture. So the culture of research, we refer to it as a notebook culture. So you have people have notebooks and labs and they do stuff, they write it down and they explore things. There's this exploration and discovery in the book, we, we call this, you know, work in the blue zone. And so it's people that have this kind of skill to be able to bring things from different fields and explore and discover. And exploration and discovery is still very critical. And then on the, on the other side in the chart is what we call the green zone. And that's, that's really a documentation production culture, but it's driven by customer engagement. So... They spend a lot of time in the field talking to people, looking at what's going on and trying to understand how would somebody really use this technology? Because just because you can do it doesn't mean they're going to use it. But if you don't produce it in a way that's usable with the end user and that, you know, to be defined sometimes because you say, well, I'm who would really make this decision or how would you really use this in the field? Until you get that right, you can't go from you know, the culture in the blue zone to the culture in the green zone. And so we, when we do this, and I talk about this in the book, they cross through what's called the rock and roll zone. <laughs> and the rock and roll zone is not for everybody because you're going to go out and try something and you're, they're going to say, what a dumb idea or it didn't work. And you go through that multiple times. You know, the people that do that, we call technology Sherpas because they need to bring it from one culture to the other culture through some pretty treacherous territory sometimes to really get to, okay, here's what people really want it 
and here's how they need it. And each industry has its own culture. So the oil and gas industry has its own culture based on years of you know legacy and and understanding that culture is really critical when you're talking about a technology that's going to be adopted by folks in that field. If you don't understand the culture and learn to respect it, you will never be successful. Same thing is in the medical space, in the defense space, and each one has its own culture. So I put culture out there because in the blue zone, the way you do research, you know, a lot of universities do it right, but 95% never sees the light of day because it ends there. The, the green zone, you got people that know how to make products and get it into the market, but they can't innovate out of a paper bag sometimes, you know, some of those folks. But bring it away where these cultures develop a mutual respect. That's what we work on at OceanIt. And that mutual respect is not about I'm smarter than you or what you did is easy. It's that I need you and you need me because together we can make things really work. And we work on managing that culture between these two worlds. And, you know, going through the rock and roll zone, it's to let people know, you know, buckle in because this could be rough to get through to the other side with something that people really need. And sometimes you go out there and when it fails, you learn and you pivot and you learn and you pivot and you learn and you pivot. Um, one of the things that we're building right now, which looks really promising, but um, underwater broadband. And this was um, started with a conversation with Shell Oil in Brazil on the pre-salt, looking at how do we operate at 10,000 feet like an undersea city. So you, you reduce the need for semi-submerged platforms, and uh, but you need connectivity. You really need broadband. So. We did an early demo and showed we could do a gigabit underwater at 100 yards, and that was a, a big aha. So they ended up throwing in money and a bunch of groups threw in some funding, and I think Department of Energy threw in some funding. And yeah. so I got a, one of our young physicists, uh, uh, and, and I said, look, because he's looking at it, he goes, man, this is a, this is a hard problem. And I said, look, make me a crappy one as fast as you can and just get over it and then make a better one. But don't just sit there and look at the wall because I know this is a hard problem. That's why it's not been done like this. But get it over with as fast as you can and find out why it doesn't work and let's get to something that works. And so we got a system today. It'll operate it, you know, pretty consistently at 100 megabit. It's a TCP IP protocol, just like you have in your living room. And you can fly in and out of it, and it can find other sensors, and it can do this. It's this whole mesh network. You can put it underwater. And we're, we're in the process now of trying to get that ready for a deployment at about 10,000 feet to simulate what's off of the, you know, the pre-salt off of a Rio. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll operate, I think, the first system we're trying to operate off of Kauai. There's an internet junction at 60 miles off of Kauai at about 10,000 feet. And we said, let's try that. And uh, but see, you're going to end. You're going to get to a whole bunch of different problems because now you got pressure and you got corrosion. You got all the standard things, and that's what it takes to get a product out there, right? You keep you keep moving and pivoting, learning from what did and didn't work, and roll that into the one that's going to work. Right. Right. Yeah. The dr. The DOE has a scale called technology readiness level, and the uh, 
the stage one is kind of like feasibility, like just describe this for me. And then uh, TRL number nine is, you know, demos for commercialization, just get some attention and kind of work out those last uh, little pieces, you know, before you go into market. And there's there's this place where we call the valley of death on before TRL five and on after TRL five, when you have you've built your prototype and you've you know, you figured that out, but now you got to build a bigger one and maybe you get somebody who'll help you, you know, build a bigger one on TRL5, but you need to really test it and have more innovation about it and really, you know, really fix it so that it can become commercial at, you know, TRL9. And that's where it's hardest to get the money yep. at that time. And it's, the valley of death, the two valleys of death, they call so, it. So you bring up a really important point and uh, it's a real issue. It's non-trivial. But what we found is that see a lot of folks developing things wait till the very end to talk to customers. That's a huge mistake. Because when you talk to them early, you can adjust what the product looks like. So by the time you get to you know this valley of death, you got something that looks promising. And it's what they want. And in the energy space, we do this thing called corporate co-development, where we then work with these big companies and say, okay, the next piece of it, we're going to need some help. So we put together this thing we call a joint industry partnership, and we get a bunch of these guys to put money in the bucket. And it's our technology, but but they would like access to it. They don't want to build it all on their own. They're in the energy business, right? It's not their business, but they need that capability. So with these JIPs, we've been able to get them to put money in the bucket to get through the valley of death. But we're also defining the market and the customer as we go from an early stage. So a lot of technical people wait till the very end and say, okay, now I'm going to talk to a customer. That's usually a big mistake. And then there's one of the, another issue where they feel that they can't talk to somebody unless it's all perfectly working. And I said, that's a mistake too, because... You need to show the promise of what it does, but there's lots of details that you're not even going to know until you spend time with a real customer. And that's where I say you've got to be talking to end users really early. And so on the green team at Oceanit, we have people that uh, spend a lot of time out there talking to customers, going to conferences and listening. We invite people over. We have visitors all the time from the energy space uh, because they're curious about what we're doing, but we're listening to what they're what they're what they're concerned about, and it's that communication and understanding that's really essential to do this. Because if you don't, you make a cool thing that just sits on a shelf, and that's where a lot of these things fail. And the valley of death is a real thing. But when you have this conversation early and you bring them into the process, it's not about the money for these guys. They got tons of capital. That's not the problem. It's, is it something they need? And if you can't get that straight, they don't want to waste their time. But but if you've got something that shows promise that's just what they need, they're really supportive. And that's yeah, what, in the energy yeah. space especially. Yeah, yeah. Well, so often, um, 
the market doesn't know that it needs it. Exactly. So, for example, there was a time I was on the way to work and I was listening to the radio and somebody was making fun of somebody else because what do you mean you're going to wear a telephone on your wrist? Who wants a telephone on their wrist? And I thought... You know, I'm a mom. I'm a working mom. I'd love to have a phone, be able to connect. Like Dick Tracy had one. Why can't exactly. I have one? You know, those kinds of things. And look, here we are, you know. Absolutely. So, but, but see, you the, bring up a really important point. What do people need? Because they're looking for a requirement that doesn't exist because the technology doesn't exist yet. So what they need is really about active listening. And we use this process. Uh, there's a thing developed at Stanford called design thinking. And we worked with them for about, got 12, 15 years on, on a boot camp uh, here in Hawaii to get the schools using design thinking to create a language of innovation. But what we were also doing is internally building this team that just does that. And a lot of the skills are around active listening. Active listening is a skill because one of the challenges for engineers is they tend to be smart and seem to know everything. That's usually a huge mistake. <laughs> because if you can't listen to what people need, they're not going to have a punch list of here's what my requirements are. But you need to spend time with people to know what they really need. You know, you take the case of a working mom. That's a hard job, right? And so, and it's yeah. complicated. So what is it? But see, that's the thing. It's understanding the person. What are they really doing? What do they care about? You know, they're trying to look after the kids and balance their career and do – and on and on. It's really complicated, but it requires active listening, empathy. And a lot of smart right. people are not empathetic because they figure they don't get it, so it's their problem. When in fact, no, it's really our problem. If we as, mm -hmm. as innovators don't become empathetic to the end user, and that's, that's working moms or, you know, the guys building wells or the guys, you know, trying to make decisions about cementing or, you know, upgrading or managing, maintaining pipelines or processing and refining. I mean, the list goes on and on, but it's kind of like you got to step in their shoes. And so this thing we did up in the, the North Slope of Alaska with uh, E&I was interesting because, you know, our guys are up there in the dead of winter. It's kind of like, okay, this is the full experience here, guys. From Hawaii? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and besides the bitter cold, it's like you want to understand what they're up against? Live in their shoes. And so right. we did this demo pilot for a couple of years. The results were off the chart. Uh, they've become a big fan of what we do. And uh, so that's actually worked out pretty well. But again, mm -hmm. it required mm -hmm. people to go to Alaska in the dead of winter and and experience what they experience and feel the pain of what they're trying to solve because that's what it's going to take to really get a, a, a technology that meets what they need because the requirement doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Patrick, I could talk with you forever, and I used to talk with you forever. <laughs> so we're going to have to do this again. There's just so much more to ask you, but we are at time. So I'm going to have to wind this down and ask you if you have any last things you would like to share before we close out. No, I just think, you know, one of the key things that is kind of underappreciated, and, and people say it because it's kind of cliche, but it really comes down to people. And one of the things I try to think about in my job is 
how to give people the space to be amazing at what they do. And when I do that, it brings this thing out. It's where the heart and the head come together, and they're just a powerful and unstoppable. And that's really one of the unique things about it is this human potential. And so I see it all the time. And, you know, that's one of the things I try to think about is giving people the space to bring that out from inside. And boy, when they do, they, they walk through walls, they do things that are just amazing. So I think that's, you know, one of the key messages I would share with the audience is that there's a real untapped thing sometimes in companies with people, giving them the chance to be amazing. It's a little scary because, you know, people don't want them to screw up, but most of the time they won't disappoint. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had a professor in school who said, if we learn from our mistakes, the only way to get ahead is to double your rate of failure. <laughs> I didn't quite understand that, but I knew it made, he meant, don't be afraid to make mistakes and, Absolutely. and just go ahead and get there. Oh, Patrick, this has been fascinating. We will definitely have to ha have you come back. Um, I, I so appreciate you being here with us today. Well, thank you for having me, and, and it's great chatting with you, Elena. Thank you. Dr. Patrick Sullivan, CEO and founder of Oceanet Laboratories, thank you so much for being our guest today and for sharing all about your contributions to oil and gas and upstream and the world. <laughs> and we thank everyone for listening. Please give us a review and tell us what you like and what you'd like to hear more about on future podcasts. This is Elena Milkert, your host for Oil and Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Upstream Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.